For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. February 3rd, 1870. It's been about five years since the end of the Civil War. The United States is laboriously, violently, slowly putting itself back together. And in Des Moines, the men of the Iowa State Legislature have gathered to take a vote. They're in a nondescript brick building. Construction will begin soon on the new grandiose Capitol with columns out front and a gold dome on top. But for now, for this important day, they're here. The vote that they're taking today, 27 other states have already taken it. The Iowa legislature is going to decide whether to ratify the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The text reads, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The Republicans in 1870 are still the party of Lincoln. They've been pushing for this amendment and for Black civil rights more generally. The Democrats oppose the amendment and generally oppose Black civil rights. And in Iowa, the ratification vote falls almost entirely along party lines. There are about 100 more Republicans than Democrats, so it's basically a landslide. Iowa votes to ratify the amendment. And with that, three-quarters of the states then in the Union have approved it. The 15th Amendment will become law, and Black men will have a constitutional right to vote. This ushers in a time of massive change, progress. But only for a moment. It's all going to be cut short by violence and Jim Crow laws that effectively negate the amendment. And yet for a brief window, about seven years, America gets a glimpse of Black voters' true political force. What did it look like when the Constitution finally protected Black voting rights? And what might the country have looked like if this moment of progress and opportunity hadn't been cut so tragically short? I'm Sally Helm, and this is History This Week. Today, we go back to the ratification of the 15th Amendment. Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in. 
as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. We spoke about the 15th Amendment, its meaning, its impact, with historian Yahuru Williams. Yahuru Williams, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sally. Thanks for having me. So you are a professor at the University of St. Thomas. You have written a lot about Black activism, including the Black Power Movement. But you're currently working on a book that actually centers on the U.S. during this post-Civil War period, including things around activism and voting for Black Americans. And so to begin, can you just tell us what was happening politically in the country when the 15th Amendment was first passed by Congress? When the 15th Amendment is first passed by Congress, Reconstruction is still the law of the land in the United States. And Reconstruction is an effort by the Republican Congress to ensure an atmosphere that will guarantee equal justice and equality before the law for the freedmen in those former states of the Confederacy. In order to ensure that this is the case, you have federal troops who are really stationed in the South, and the Freedmen's Bureau, an agency that is designed to make sure that African-American civil rights are not being violated in those former states of the Confederacy. When the 15th Amendment is first proposed, it's been about four years since the end of the Civil War. And there have already been two other amendments added to the Constitution. So the other two amendments are the 13th Amendment, which is passed in 1865, which abolishes slavery, and the 14th Amendment, which establishes citizenship for the freedmen um, in the aftermath of the war. But what does citizenship mean exactly? In 1870, it depends who you ask. And if you ask many Americans, especially white male Americans, citizenship doesn't necessarily include voting. They've found all kinds of ways to continue to deny Black citizens the right to vote. There's so much violence and chicanery that follow each of these amendments that they almost necessitate the passage of the next. It has become clear, at least to Republicans, that the nation needs a new amendment, a 15th Amendment, one that is specifically about voting. So let's talk about the fight over the 15th Amendment in Congress. Who was for it and who was against it? The fight for the 15th Amendment in Congress falls along party lines. And there are those who are part of the Republican Party who are staunchly in favor of the amendment because they feel it's necessary to ensure Black voting rights. Their critics say that it's not necessary and that it's basically intended to ensure that African-Americans will vote for the Republican ticket. That's the party of Reconstruction, the party of Lincoln. And the Democrats really are seen as the party of white supremacy, the party that wants to roll back those gains that have been made to return to the status quo. But if you look at the data and what's coming back to the Congress, the reports of the Freedmen's Bureau and those troops that are stationed in the South, it clearly was necessary given the level of violence and intimidation that was visited against Black voters in the South. So the 15th Amendment passes at the federal level, and it goes to the states for ratification. Iowa becomes the 28th state to ratify, and a few weeks later, the amendment is enacted. 
Now, we should note only men are able to vote. Women won't get that right until 1920 with the 19th Amendment. And Native Americans weren't guaranteed the right to vote in every state until 1962. There's a story about a man named Thomas Mundy Peterson, who seems to have been the first Black man to cast a ballot after the amendment took effect. Professor Williams told us that Mundy Peterson voted in a local election in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. We tend not to think of Northern communities as being affiliated with the slave trade. Perth Amboy was a pretty significant slave port. And so for Thomas Mundy Peterson to exercise the right to vote in that community and then to go on and to remain politically active was quite important. It was a moment of triumph. And yet years later, Thomas Mundy Peterson would recall that when he voted for that very first time, a white voter ripped up his ballot and said, this is useless. There are those who are not excited about the prospects of having a democracy that's all-inclusive because they fear what it will mean in terms of a loss for their own political influence. This story is sort of a good way to encapsulate what happened when the 15th Amendment took effect. On the one hand, Black men were immediately allowed to vote. But on the other hand, there was an immediate backlash from white voters. Eventually, states and their voting systems would largely align with those white voters. They'd use laws and the courts to try to combat the amendment and codify voter discrimination. But that didn't happen all at once. There are large numbers of African-Americans who exercise the right to vote, but it is a dangerous enterprise. Hmm. And we wouldn't in any way want to suggest that just because there is a 15th Amendment that suddenly the pathway is cleared for voting without the dangers associated with that. One of the nation's oldest and largest uh, terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan, emerges. But even in this moment, there is opportunity that presents itself for African-Americans to push the boundaries despite Southern resistance. There's a tremendous moment of hope and opportunity that follow the passage of the 15th Amendment in particular, Hmm. because there is a belief that ultimately this amendment will open the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. As a result of this opportunity, as a result of this hope, those seven years are quite extraordinary. Despite the anger and violence, many, many Black men do register to vote. Estimates say more than half a million became voters in the South. And about 2,000 Black men end up holding some kind of elected office during Reconstruction. Yeah, so who were some of the notable Black politicians elected to federal office? So you have Robert Smalls, Hiram W. Revels, Blanche Bruce, among the most prominent of those who are elevated to elective office. And we're not just talking about, you know, state senators or national office. We're talking about things like the tax collector. Mm. These kind of grassroots, on-the-ground political offices that, for most people, are going to have real meaning in terms of their everyday lives and what life looks like in the communities in which they live. So what are some of the policies and programs that were put in place during this time? One of the most important is the connection between the right to vote and the rise of public schools and public education in the United States. 
one of the things that African-American activists focus on um, quite early is the need for education. This belief that it was fundamental to freedom and equality. Many scholars have argued, and it's true, that the rise of public education was intimately tied to Reconstruction in the South and this desire in the part of African-Americans to have access to education as a means of being able to be fully functioning members of society. Black voters and Black politicians helped push through laws that essentially created public schools in the South. The Freedmen's Bureau and Black activists helped establish thousands of schools there during Reconstruction. Both Black and white children benefited from this. It's a reform that, of course, still exists and is still one of the government's most equalizing programs. But the backlash was coming. It came pretty quick. What happened to bring this period to an end? 1876, there was a close, contested election for the presidency of the United States. And what ends up happening is in order for the Republicans to claim a victory in that election, they're forced to make a compromise whereby they agree to end federal reconstruction in the South in order to ensure that they'll be able to take over the White House. Hmm. It's called the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, and ultimately that's what ends Reconstruction in the South, the withdrawal of federal troops to ensure that Rutherford B. Hayes will be granted the presidency in this close election. So the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes ascends to the presidency and he withdraws troops from the South. He promptly withdraws troops from the South, and historians generally agree that that is the end of Reconstruction in the South. It's this declaration by withdrawal that the federal government no longer is going to make this commitment to Black civil rights, and the most visible sign of that is the withdrawal of troops. What happens once the troops leave in 1877? Once the troops leave in 1877, the gloves really are off, and what you see in very short order, is the advent of all the things that we associate with Jim Crow segregation in America. You see efforts, unhampered efforts now, to curtail Black voting rights. You see Southern legislatures passing laws to restrict um, access to places of public accommodation. You see all types of violence and political interference uh, with Black voting rights that ultimately result in African-Americans taking on the role of second-class citizens. By 1877, the Freedmen's Bureau is disbanded and the Union troops have moved out. Without those protections to ensure that Black voters can exercise their rights, there is a huge rollback. And some of that happens within legal channels. States introduce things like grandfather clauses, which say that you can only vote if your family was allowed to vote before 1865. That bars all the newly freed Black men. There are poll taxes that many Black voters can't pay. There are literacy tests, and states make them basically impossible for Black voters to pass, no matter how highly educated they are. Also, the threat of violence is very real, and it goes largely ignored by the people in power. Before 1877, there had been violence too, but there were also more efforts to combat it. One of the reasons that terrorist organizations like the Klan wear those robes and hoods is because they recognize that the activities that they're engaged in are illegal. Mm -hmm. They have to come in the cover of night. They do face prosecution and arrest. 
That actually is a sign of progress because when we think about what the world is like, what the United States is like after 1877, the reason we can point to those pictures of lynchings where no one is wearing a robe and hood is because there's no longer any threat of prosecution for all sorts of violence aimed at denying black civil rights. And the gains made during this period, black members of Congress, half a million black voters, they won't be matched for another hundred years. After the black senators elected during Reconstruction, there wasn't another black man elected to the Senate until Edward Brooke wins his election in 1966. That's a year after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 sort of gives the 15th Amendment teeth. Because the act includes enforcement mechanisms. Professor Williams told us that was what had been missing. So by the time we get to the 1950s and 1960s, you don't need a new 15th Amendment. That language is still meaningful. What you need is a mechanism for enforcement. It's been over 75 years since the Union troops were recalled from the South and the Freedmen's Bureau disbanded. But finally, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 brings some enforcement measures back. The act specifically outlaws literacy tests and other similar requirements established during the Jim Crow era. It also creates a position called federal examiner. That person was responsible for overseeing local voting issues and ensuring that the act was enforced. The examiners are placed in areas where some of the most egregious anti-voting efforts took place. And with those protections, a lot of important groups during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s are able to organize huge voter registration campaigns. Why? Because they recognize that in getting African-Americans or any politician sympathetic to the needs of the African-American community elected to office, they could affect change, real change, radical change that would ensure economic, social, and political equality for communities of color. And so there's been this back and forth. Black activists and their allies, too many to name, pushing for voting rights. And then efforts to roll those rights back. A lot of people point to a Supreme Court decision in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder, as an example of those efforts. The ruling basically removed some enforcement provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And all of these conversations hinge on the 15th Amendment. It would be fair to say that there is a arc to our conversations about voting in this country in which the 15th Amendment is central. And if we think about the 15th Amendment as this tremendous moment in 1870 to make the promise of equality real, then the efforts following that, even in our contemporary moment, Bring us back to the central question that's raised by the preamble to the Constitution. We the people. But who are the people? What constitutes the people? And what empowers the people? And the engine for that has always been the right to vote. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your cable guide to find out what's on history today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hello all, my name's Al Murray. And I'm James Holland, historian and author. I'm a comedian and I'm obsessed with the Second World War. We both are, totally. Are you one of those people who loves talking about tanks and spitfires and the battle for the beaches? Have you seen Where Eagles Dare six times? Our podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, comes out twice a week. We speak to all the top experts, plus veterans and famous people with a World War II connection. Don't call it World War II, James. Why not? It's not a sequel. It's a war, not a movie. But we love war movies. That's not the point. Anyway, give us a go. We have ways of making you talk wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. 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 recommends. recommends.